This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Security Operations. Today, I'm speaking with Elastic's Product Marketing Director, focusing on security, James Spiteri. Thanks for chatting with me today, James. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, why don't you tell me a little bit more about yourself, your background, and the work you do at Elastic? Sure thing. So um, my background is, you know, I've been working in security operations pretty much my entire career. Been with Elastic for coming up to four years now. Initially joined as our solutions architect, focusing on security use cases. This was even before we ever had a security product. So the main reason I joined was because I was building a lot of stuff with Elastic in regards to security operations. And Elastic was just about to start making a big push towards security. So I was brought on to help our you know, users and community architect Elastic for security use cases. Prior to that, I was essentially doing the same thing either for other organizations. You know, that I worked for a few companies that were, were customers of Elastic as well. Did a little like MSSP startup for a while, architecting, you know, custom platforms for them. You know, even before that, you know, I always had a really deep passion for anything security, but security operations is always my my primary, let's say, focus point. And anything, uh, you know, digital defense is what I like to say. So uh, blue teaming, uh, even purple teaming today, it's my bread and butter. Even I though I've, I've shifted into marketing, but one of the main reasons I did make that shift was I wanted to make people as excited about doing security operations with tools like Elastic as much as it excites me. And marketing is the perfect platform to do that. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, some of the awesome research work you do. I think marketing is, uh, is an interesting sound to put on it. But yeah, you do some, Elastic do some incredible research for, for a company that's relatively new to security. Can you tell me, for those that aren't familiar with Elastic, can you tell me a little bit more about what you guys do? Yeah, sure thing. So many people don't really realize that they probably use some form of Elastic every day. So Elastic started off as a, as a search company. So just to give you an idea, if you go to Netflix and run a search, that's using Elastic. Use Uber to get a cab, that's using Elastic. So primarily Elastic was there to solve the growing search problem. Uh, when I say problem, there were existing tools to use for search, but they were they're really complex to use. They didn't really scale. The APIs weren't very um, accessible. So, you know, back in 2010, Shai Bannon, our current CTO and, and co-founder said, I'm going to release this project that I've been working on open source and we released Elasticsearch. Because of how easy it was to build on top of Elastic and how well it scaled with huge data, it started being used for other use cases than search. So people started putting their, their logs in there and their security events. And, and you know, this was never like envisioned that it's going to happen, but it just happened because it was an open project and people said, oh, this is great for this sort of thing. 
So as we started off with search, we eventually evolved into building solutions on top of Elastic. So of course, we still have the search use case. We now call it uh, enterprise search. We have our security solution. So everything from endpoint protection and uh, detection to your traditional security analytics and operations. And we also have an observability suite. So things like application performance monitoring, logging, um, that sort of stuff. So that's what we do. I would say the vast majority of everything we offer is totally free. So we have this free and open mentality where you can use the product as much as you want. Uh, you know, we do have paid variants of that, but uh, a lot of the product is free for anyone to use. So yeah, I think that's, that's a bit of what we do. And it's also super easy to get started as well if anybody wants to uh, wants to try that. I don't want to get too much into a plug, but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's super uh, super powerful. I want to dive into a little bit of your background as well. So you previously, as you said, spent time working in uh, working in SOCs, running uh, running security infrastructure teams, building out Elastic yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about I suppose some of the challenges that you were facing and why you ended up standardizing on Elastic and yeah, how you got rid of a lot of that manual work? Sure. So for me, it's funny because I never really used a traditional SIM for too long. When I say traditional SIM, something that's out of the box, off the shelf, and they do a lot of the work for you. I used a few of these very um, briefly, but then I was thrown into an environment where, hey, we have nothing, we need to build something. So initially, you know, I spent a lot of time working on tools like Splunk, and then I shifted onto Elastic. And the main reason back then was, apart from, you know, the speed and, and how easy it was to scale, I could do anything I wanted with Elastic. I'm a very hands-on person, even if, I, if it led to me building like automation on top of it. I like to be able to turn all the knobs and twist all the dials. That's just the kind of person I am. And because Elastic is one big restful interface, so there's an API for everything, that was golden. Like I, I couldn't beat that. There was nothing um, which, if I needed to automate something, there was nothing I couldn't automate with Elastic's APIs. So anything from obviously bringing in data to you know, spinning up a new tenant to uh, loading up a dashboard, this stuff was was invaluable for me. And even I would say things like, going beyond what Elastic offers. So, you know, Elastic has a, one of the tools in our suite is called Logstash. I took Logstash and I ran with it. So I even used it as like a, back then, like a mini platform to like execute scripts on hosts because it has that option to like execute the script on a host. And it allows you to uh, listen for a RESTful event. So I used it as like a, like a mini agent to be able to automate like actions to run on hosts. Yeah. So like lightweight sore, if we'll use that terminology. So I took that and, and ran with it. And like, um, just the fact that I was able to do anything that came into my mind or anything that popped in. Yes, some things might have taken time, but I always got there in the end. Like, uh, even when it came to like, you know how it is sometimes you, you work in an organization and they have some really old technology that uh, the only way to get logs out is some archaic process. And the, even then the format is crazy terrible. I still found a way to put that data in Elastic or use like the free text search capabilities to, to run detections on it. So those were the main reasons why I stuck so long with it because it just made me successful in what I wanted to do. Nice. Makes a ton of sense. And I, I, you know, one of the reasons we're, we're fans is obviously that there is like, you know, Tynes is an automation platform. It connects with anything with an API, but that means that whatever you can, whatever you want to automate using Elastic, you're going to be able to automate but yeah, talk to me about some of the challenges that you were facing, I suppose. So some of the some of the things you were trying to detect, some of the things you were trying to build. I suppose what security operations looked like a few years ago. I'm interested in like where it's going and what its current state is. But what, what were some of the challenges that you were facing, I suppose, then that may be different now? So, yeah, so one of the things I was really focused on is uh, what I like to call enrichment of data. Yeah. So a lot of teams were very focused on, oh, let's do everything in the query. 
So like if we need to add any context, we'll add it as part of the query. I always found that like a bit of a backwards process because you should probably add that context as the data is going in, right? And then uh, it's ready. Your query is way more lightweight. So that was stuff. Uh, those are a couple of challenges that I used Elastic for. Things like, hey, as data is coming in, let's query this API to check if it's on, you know, some blacklist. Or a couple of years ago, you know, when when Troy Hunt released the Have I Been Pwned API, I would check users' logins against that API. Oh, this person was in a breach. Uh, let's check if you know there's anything going on with their accounts that's not normal. You know, checking back then, hey, why is someone logging in if they're on vacation, for example? These are all use cases where I'm like, we should probably do this as data's coming in. And that was always something that I was really able to do with Elastic. And then, of course, you have your standard enrichment types, like let's add, you know, GOIP data. Let's take it a step further. Let's add like autonomous system name information. Let's do all this really cool stuff. Like for me, it was a really interesting time. And then something else, of course, was... I've never had the opportunity before joining Elastic to work on a, you know, a huge SOC team. So like, you know, your level one, level two, level three, you know, 40 person security operations team where you can have people eyes on screen all the time. Yeah. So I had to use Elastic in a way where it let me know what I should focus on the most. So this is where alerting and notifications come in. So, you know, using things like Slack bots to your advantage, like I built a Slack bot back then manually using, you know, Python scripts and whatever. And whilst it was a bit of a painful process because I'm, I'm not a developer at heart, I still managed to do it. I still managed okay. to do it based on what uh, Elastic had to offer and what Slack has to offer. You know, kudos to Slack because again, it's just one big Make API. It's, it's yeah, pretty easy to build. So I would say, just going back to your original question, because I, I think I deviated a bit, like what were the challenges uh, a few years ago? I think they're still relevant today. I think the, the biggest challenges people have are dealing with data and dealing with detections at scale. And when I say dealing with data is, listen, we have 50 different types of data. We need to make sure they're always coming in and they're always parsed properly. That's still a challenge today, right? Um, and if yeah. anyone tells you they've, they've 100% solved that challenge, I, I don't think they realize that there's probably some gaps still somewhere. And then again, coming to a point where, listen, we need to build detections which are efficient, but not too noisy. And I think that's been a challenge for a while, either because of the performance of the platform you had to build on, or gaps in like querying capability, or just bad data to work with. Only now has it gotten to a point where there are so many different ways to bring data in, like really good data. So whether that's endpoint data, firewall data, proxies, you name it, whatever's important to you. I think now we've come to a point where teams are comfortable that they can bring it in. But a few years ago, that wasn't the case. A few years ago, people still struggled with understanding, for example, what they had to bring in from their Linux machines, right? You still run into those situations where some people don't know what's available to them, but even from an operating system perspective, there's a lot more awareness now and there's way more tools. Or, you know, the age-old problem of, okay, we can get the data, but there's no way to bring it in in an encrypted way. So like you're, you're sending like clear text syslog with, uh, over UDP, which is obviously never ideal. So these are the, the challenges I think I used to struggle with the most, but there was always some way to, to get around them, I think. Yeah, I think that you're 100% right. Like security is, the security industry has matured quite a bit to, to the extent that, you know, a couple of years ago, plenty of security vendors didn't offer, you know, didn't offer an EDR agent for a Mac or something like that. I didn't have rules to parse. Yeah. Like some Linux logs. And you're like, this is, it makes it a lot harder when I have to do this. Uh, I have to do this myself and I can't build out detections on top of it. I loved your point around, um, yeah, it was enriching early on in the process. A lot of people view SOAR as that place that you should always do the enrichment. And we say, yeah, you absolutely can. But, to be honest, if you're building a detection, it makes a lot more sense to yeah. say, you know, build a detection to say, like, if somebody's on holidays and logs in, you know, from a suspicious location, then do X rather than say if they, you know, 
I suppose rather than doing it the other way around, like, you know, check every single login and then check if they're on holidays. You want to build a much more high fidelity detection uh, in order to not burn out your analysts and keep them, uh, keep them exhausted. As I like to say, like, make the data work for you. Yeah. Don't make people work hard for on the data. Make the data work for you. Like, that's it. 100%. One of the things I love about, yeah, I said, like, we work very closely with the, uh, with the Elastic team, but you're doing some incredible research. So research into various different ABT groups, various different cybercrime groups. And obviously, you know, from a marketing perspective, it, it makes a ton of sense to be highlighting it. But can you talk to me about, I suppose, like, the state of security operations today is, is one thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you view the state of cybercrime today? Like, who are you concerned about or what are you seeing a lot more of these days? So, you know, it's not new. Like people, I should say groups have gotten really sophisticated. And mm-hmm. the reason is because they're having a harder time, right? So even from, if we take like, let's take Microsoft as a as an operating system, or I should say Windows as an operating system, Microsoft as the vendor, they've added so much to the Windows OS to try and prevent, you know, things like ransomware and, and exploits happening that groups have to work twice, three times as hard, even just compared to like five years ago, right? It, it was so much easier to find an exploit mm-hmm. five years ago. And people are well aware now of these things. I think the awareness has gotten way better. So like people are patching more regularly and stuff. So attackers are hard, having a harder time. So whenever something does hit, it's really sophisticated. And you can tell from the research that we have, or we've been doing, the teams have been doing, some of this malware that's being written is you know top notch like this is not something some script kiddie did most of the time it's you know you have teams of software engineers spending months at a time building out really sophisticated malware like uh, we saw this with solar and stuff right that yeah. was you know very clearly evident that this was not like a, a really quick thing that someone put together no this was a long time planned properly engineered bit of of malware and uh, campaign end to end right so that's the sort of thing we're noticing and What's top of mind for us is people are targeting, like, so now that Windows is protected, you know, portable executables are very well looked at from like an EDR perspective and stuff. They're pivoting into looking at other languages. So, you know, uh, malware in Go has become a, a very big thing, as an example. Or um, let's see how we're going to disable the EDR first and foremost. So we see a lot of work happening to try and disable EDR platforms or protection on the operating system. We see cloud misuse, right? So I think the first real big thing we saw in cloud, or at least uh, that I'm aware of was the, the whole Capital One incident a few years ago. Mm-hmm. That didn't stop at Capital One. There, there's more that we see every single day. You know, cloud misuse, even just using cloud resources for like crypto mining and stuff. And sometimes that doesn't go detected. Like people don't actively look for stuff like that. And then you get someone who, you know, they, they, they get a huge bill from their cloud provider. Oh, why is this? Because you have 10 instances at really high CPU that have been mining the heck out of crypto. So there's stuff like that that we're really focused on. And of course, a big push for us at the moment is we know the world is now living in containers and mm-hmm. uh, Kubernetes pods, right? So and attackers know this. They're not going to shy away from it or anything like that. So you might have seen uh, last year, we, we joined forces with a company called uh, CMD and another one, yeah. um, Build Security. That's because we want to give users the same level of confidence that they can protect and detect on in containers and Kubernetes and all that good stuff, the same way they do on Windows, right? So these are the stuff we're seeing that we're very heavily focused on, not only the research side, but how do we make the product better to handle these vulnerabilities as well? Because it's one thing being able to do the research, it's another being able to give users advice about how to tackle it. And you know, we are a security company, we have a security product. The most straightforward way is for us to 
to try and be able to detect this within our own product. But we still share things like ER signatures that people can use wherever they like, um, even like pseudo detection logic if they need. So I think that's very important for us. And we're all about community. You know, it's not just about having a free product, but people can reach out to us for advice on things like our community Slack at any time. Yeah. We're very, very open to that, even in terms of like detection logic for these things. So I'll take um, SolarWinds or the exchange of vulnerability, which happened very soon after that, uh, early last year. We had people contributing detection logic in our detections repository, like really powerful detections that ended up in the product. And we don't shy away from that. We think that is incredible. And honestly, that's the only way as a security industry that we're going to win this fight is if we work together. Like people working in silos, it's proven that it's not effective. Or, you know, these very secretive security teams, you know, whilst I understand that there's sometimes you do have to be a bit covert in what you do, I think the more you share, the more chance you have of being able to stop what you're facing. And I think a really good example of how this helped, both from a research perspective, from a sharing perspective, look for Shell in December. I was in awe at the security community in December. You had not just um, community researchers, or uh, you also had vendors, not just the last, obviously many, many, many vendors helping out and just giving stuff away for free. Like uh, mm-hmm. even, you know, uh, smaller organizations like Grey Noise and stuff like that. It was really, really positive. Like everyone understood how bad this was from an exploit perspective. And just everyone's like came together and like, let's make sure that we give as much advice and as much protection to those who need it as we can. Because, you know, it was the holiday season, teams were struggling for sure. So just to recap, Nothing new, adversaries are getting way, way more sophisticated, but they are targeting other technologies and other means to get around all the protections that operating systems are providing now. I think that really has slowed them down, but then when a campaign comes out, it's usually way more sophisticated than it used to be. Yeah, I think uh, you said so many interesting things there. One of the things, I don't know if you were were looking up on uh, recent enough, but like all the Conti leaks or Conti mm-hmm. ransomware leaks, yeah. it's fascinating seeing like the internal workings where if you think about it, like they are basically just a, a very well-funded like criminal organization that's just focusing on security and they're doing a um, yeah a really crazy job. But yeah, I suppose it's just interesting seeing like that inside of, I wouldn't call them an APT, but in the inside of a very sophisticated uh, Absolutely. criminal group saying, hey, here's how we can get around. Here's how we can purchase like Cobalt Strike in order to try to use it. Here's how we can purchase signatures in order to try to reverse engineer them. There really is, um, there's a lot of very sophisticated people out yeah. there. And it's like, one thing you notice about these teams is they're extremely diverse as well. So yeah, they might have people who don't really know security, but they're very good software engineers and that's what they care about, right? It's not like, um, unfortunately, we'll talk about this later, I think, but you know, the security industry, we say there's a shortage, like yeah. uh, in talent. But in reality, it's just because people have uh, don't widen their their diversity pool enough. Like um, <clears throat> software engineering is extremely important for security use cases, and you can see from attacker groups like they look for really good software engineers. They don't care if you had a you know twenty year background in security; they care that you can write good software and good malware. Like that, that's what they care about. Or um, you know, these days we've seen attacker groups able to spin up Azure infrastructure, you know, with Terraform and this sort of stuff. That's DevOps. That's not security. Like, oh, yes, there's a fine line, but you know what I mean? Like, um, and you can tell, like reading the Conti leaks, you see a lot of this stuff, like uh, collaboration and sharing within attacker group itself, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, when I uh, I worked in eBay for several years and we had a lot of, it was fun, eBay owned PayPal and eBay and PayPal were the number two and number one fished brands in the mm-hmm. world at the time. So we were targeted very, very heavily. 
Uh, but we were targeted by, yeah, by phishing ton. And we were also targeted a lot by, yeah, various different types of malware. But when we were like reverse engineering the malware, you'd see just like, you know, you'd see them change, you'd see their their methods and you'd be like, my role was like attribution and prosecution. So find out who people were and investigate and work with law enforcement to try to get them arrested. But basically you'd see like incredibly intelligent people in a lot of them in Eastern Europe who, if they were, you know, slightly controversial, but if they were born in the United States or if they were born in Western Europe, it's extremely probable that they'd be, you know, very well-paid software engineers working for a large organization. And it's just not, not a ton of opportunity there. Like, and you see one more one thing I say is like you'll see the stories like you know Marcus Hutchins right the yeah yeah uh, who you know found the the kill switch for WannaCry and stuff. This comes out of just being a really good software engineer. Obviously, and Marcus. Himself, yeah, like it's it's one of those things where it's just incredible to see some of these stories, and I think it's a weird world to be in. It's fascinating and scary at the same time, but that's how I describe it. You talked a little bit there and. Um that like during log4j that the best of the security industry came out where people were contributing people were sharing indicators people were sharing like companies like gray noise were proactively offering some of their services to a lot of folks i think the reason for that is that people recognize security can be a little bit of a vocation but it's also very hard mm-hmm. and you know for those of us that have been in the trenches and like lived that the instant one of these vulnerabilities come out we're like oh no, like i i feel for every single person involved this is going to be a yeah. very rough couple of days on top of I suppose, what is sometimes already like a very hard job for security engineers and security managers to, to deal with to, to help their teams. I suppose when you think about that challenge of like analyst mental health and analyst burnout and some of the challenges they're facing, I suppose at Elastic, what are you doing or what are some of the, the things you see some of your customers doing to, to help deal with that? Yeah, so, you know, burnout is, there's, there's no way around it. So at Elastic, we've introduced this concept of what we call shut it down days, or basically nice. two Fridays every month. The entire company is, it's like an initial day of, it doesn't chip into your pay time off, like everyone's off. And initially when this concept was introduced, we started doing it around the, the COVID time, you know, cause people were, you know, working from home with their kids and whatever. And people were like, oh, isn't this overkill? Cause Elastic at the same time had given us a ton of extra hours of vacation. But no, the fact that you don't have to worry about getting slacked or emailed or that sort of thing, everyone is on a level playing field. No one's working. It's just, uh, Mentally, it's a huge relief, even for me. Like it was this like, wow, this is so much better. Like I have a Friday coming up and I know I can just sit back, relax and not have to worry about being uh, answering emails or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ways. We also have just as, as a wider elastic initiative, we get mental health care. So every elastician can um, get like mental health sessions for free, like from, from professionals if they need it. And then from a burnout perspective, so I'm just going to say like, First of all, our InfoSec team here, the whole team is incredible. They're not a huge team, but they handle everything really efficiently. And they're led by our incredible CISO, Mandy Andres. And like just seeing that team work and how they share between each other, I think that really helps. Even again, I'm going to use Look for Shell as an example. When that happens, you know, for Elastic, we had two avenues, right? We had to protect our, all our infrastructure and our customers' infrastructure because we have our SaaS product. But we also write software that uses Log4j. Right, so mm-hmm. we had to get that patched out quickly. Within a few minutes, the number of people that rallied openly to come and help was phenomenal. Like uh, we knew this was a situation where it's not going to be a team of five people or whatever. I think that we had a Slack channel with about 160 people at the point, something like that. Right. You had members of our research team who it's not their job; they're not you know necessarily on call to write detections, but they helped our infosec team 
be able to detect this. Like they just jumped in willingly. No one had to ask them. They just did it. So stuff like that, just seeing that uh, incredible culture here is amazing. So those are some things we're doing to avoid burnout. So like, and I think what really helps as well is just how distributed we are. So again, our, our security team, I think it's about 80% uh, distributed. So like they're mm-hmm. literally everywhere from Europe to US to very remote areas of the US. And they use that to their advantage to avoid burnout. So the to have someone working around the clock, you follow the sun and you've done that. So you don't have to have people working like ridiculous hours or crazy shifts or anything like that. They use that to their advantage. So like being distributed really, really helps avoid that burnout there. And last thing is this culture where even though we're remote, they have, there's this concept like if you want to get on a Zoom with anyone at any time, we have this like always on Zoom session so people can join as if they're sitting there. Because you know how it is, like in a, yeah, yeah. especially if you're going to an incident, you want to bounce ideas off each other. You're, you know, check this, let's check this, check that. And remotely, that can be challenging. But having this, like, these days with Zoom and, and Slack, it's like pretty much you're, you're in the room, right? So things like that are really highly encouraged. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I've been involved in enough incidents that, like, even just having that that bridge or that, you know, that not necessarily 24-7 bridge, but sometimes, like, you know, that bridge that you can just go to and, like, bounce stuff off people. It's really, uh, it's really important. I want to, like, I suppose, circle... Toward, or back to Ad4j again, and not to invest or to, I guess, to investigate it or to talk about the cause of it. But it's those sort of incidents, I suppose, that when they come up, an already really busy security team is, you know, it overwhelms them. And it's not just your mental health and your burnout, but it's also that, you know, when they're doing a lot of manual work and when they're dealing with that challenge of, you know, those alerts that come in day to day from plastic or from anywhere else that you have to that they have to process them but when that incident comes up then it is all of a sudden you know all hands on deck i suppose yeah one of the reasons we started times was that we felt that it was impossible to keep on top of that without automating but i'd love to learn you know at elastic what are you doing to reduce the the amount of time spent on manual tasks to get the best out of your your team absolutely so our infosec team obviously use elastic as their detections platform right we call them customer zero at elastic because they're always the try out features at scale because they do a significant amount of scale of data per day. So the security engineering team uses, you know, things like cloud native functionality to their advantage. So everything runs in Kubernetes, uh, as an example. They use tools like Argo to automate uh, updates and stuff like that. So when it comes to um, making sure things are patched or on the latest versions, you know, the team needs more capacity or anything like that it's a few button clicks away or, or a GitHub issue away, you know? It's a relatively small team for the amount of infrastructure they deal with. Again, it, it is absolutely phenomenal. And then, of course, you have during incident response, like, again, when we were going through this log for shouting, as you know, our team uses Tynes, and we have this Tynes bot that continuously checks if the, the ongoing incident needs more triage or anything like that, which is, is really cool to see. And, you know, Slack bots everywhere, and mainly powered by automation tools like Tynes. So even if you need you know, to, to raise a new request or anything like that, you can do it through a Slack bot. Uh, to the point where the team has written like web portals to generate things like compliance reports. So if anyone within the organization needs our SOC2 compliance report, they can go to a portal, which generates it, uh, watermarks it, and you're good to go. Even, for example, something most people take for granted. If you need to use like uh, Okta, so... Um, if you want to set up IDP for like an Elastic cluster or whatever, because everyone at Elastic uses clusters for random tasks. They set up a portal, which basically say, oh, here's your uh, Elastic cluster. In the background, they'll generate the, the Okta config, they'll generate the application in Okta, and all you need to do as a user is a copy and paste the results. So um, 
they've obviously reduced the burden on their end to make sure people are setting up Okta correctly and securely and uh, lower the amount of inbound requests they come to them. And they make the lives of people at Elastic much, much, much easier. So for me to use Okta, I don't have to open a ticket. I don't have to do anything like that. I go to a portal, put in my URL, and I have an Okta configuration, which is amazing, right? So things like that, um, it's just, again, I, I can't fault our security team. Like, honestly, from from engineering to detection response to compliance to, like, they're always there. And uh, one more thing I'll say is, and I think this helps them as well, is they're very open about what they do. So every week, our CISO sends out a report of detections that the team have dealt with, uh, compliance requests that we've gotten, uh, top of mind vulnerabilities. So I don't question what they do. I know exactly what they're doing. So if I have a question about, oh, have we have we dealt with this new vulnerability that came out? It, it's in the report. So they, they've just made their lives easier. They've made my life easier because I don't have to go and ask them. And they've reduced the burden on themselves. So things like that, like uh, little things that go a really long way. Yeah, I love it. It's such a refreshing approach to it, being open and transparent about it. A lot of security teams, maybe a little, a little bit more historical, people are moving in this direction for sure, but a lot of security teams don't like talking anything about security because it could imply that, yep. well, we're, we may not be you know, 100% secure. Well, that's part of it. You absolutely have to uh, communicate so. in order to, yeah. They have a lot of trust. So people trust our security team because they're not shrouded in secrecy. Yep. You know, like um, how many Transparency, times... bills... Yeah. Confidence. As a security person, the last thing I'd want is people not coming to me because they have this fear that I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. Like, how many times have we seen that in security teams? Someone asks a question, oh, can we install this application? It's like a blanket no, no questions asked or like no help or advice or anything like that. And if a person is continuously told no when they ask the security team something, they're just going to bypass the security team, which isn't going to help anyone. So yeah. um, there's all of this stuff, like this culture, like if you have a question, just ask it and uh, someone's going to get back to you. And they mean it, like they really do. Whether that's like a, a request to look at some new software that someone wants to install or like there's this Slack app that someone wants to add to the channel, like all of this stuff is looked at and um, very rarely is, or without good reason, is someone told no. It's not just no as well, right? It's like the team of like, you know, anytime you interact with them, it could be a no or it could be you just did something wrong, you're yeah, at exactly. fault and blame, which is yeah. the exact like that doesn't breed confidence, that just breeds that I don't want to talk to that team or ever uh so that's, ever ever interact with them. And then then you get into the, the situation where people aren't gonna follow your policies, nope. people are gonna just do things the way they want because like you've you've built this culture of the security team is gonna tell me no and again it just doesn't help anyone. So if you're, I suppose, starting or leading a security team today, or if you're giving advice to some of the listeners who are starting or leading a security team today, what advice would you give them? What, what approach do you think they should take? Yeah. So first of all, I would say build a really good culture, an open culture, like I, like I was just describing. I think that is number one, because that is inherently going to build trust in anything you advise or anything you do or, and give. Secondly, if we take the, let's say, security operations, detections, response, like angle, I see a lot of teams, they try and boil the ocean. Like they try and say, oh, we need to become, we need to do all of this and this time, and then the project is complete. Like that doesn't work. Like if you try and do it that way, you're going to fail. If you try and build every detection that you need within a week or bring in all your data sources, that's not going to work. Take a, you know, a step-by-step -step approach, like little wins. Like agile works very well in security. And uh, that's something like tried and tested. Like don't go in and... Uh, say, oh, we have this period of time. By the end of this period of time, we're going to be secure. We're going to have all our stuff. It just doesn't work. I always like to use a quote from 
I don't know if you watched the the Paul Blart movies, Mall Cop. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember if it's the first or second one, but he says security is a mission, not an intermission. And it is a mission. It's an ever-evolving mission. Like you, yeah. you don't you don't it's not something you're gonna finish from one day to the next. It's something that never stops. So little increments, little wins is what you should be doing. Yeah, I love it. That's uh, our regular listeners will recognize that as a as a pattern that like and one of my phrases is always like it's it should never be like you know, build it great and they will come. But you're never secure. You're only securing. You're always just getting like 1% better. Absolutely. But those people that are like, you know, we'll do this and then that's it. You know, tick, I'm secure. As much as a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot like a lot of boards or a lot of C-suite may really want that. I, I'm sure it's a little bit different elastic. There's obviously a, a security culture, but it's never the case that you just, uh, you know, yeah. deploy one tool and therefore you're secure. And I think so. one more bit of advice I'd give is there's a lot of help out there. Yeah. And there's a lot of really good tooling out there, which doesn't cost you a cent if you don't have the budget for it. So again, going back to this like shrouded in secrecy, there's also this like sense of pride that some security teams have. And like they're scared that if they ask a question, it's like they're not good at what they do. I think that's absolutely nonsense. Like if, you, if you're not sure about something, if you need help in a security topic, any topic, go and ask. Like there's so many people willing to help. Someone already probably ran into this problem you're facing. You're probably going to find the answer a few clicks away. So th- don't shy out from asking. Like, uh, put your pride aside. There's a ton of help out there and a ton of really good products to, that and tooling that's completely free. Um, look at all the work like uh, Mitre Ingenuity is doing, right? Yeah. And uh, the whole Mitre Attack Framework and the Detect Framework and Defense Framework, whatever they're, they're calling it, I, I forgot. But also, you know, you've had organizations or tools like the Hive being built out mm-hmm. with their Cortex analyzers, the things you guys have built with your community additions. There's so much out there. Like, it's incredible. And there's so much out there that people keep maintained lists of free tools that you can use to help yourselves. And what I've really liked to see is bigger organizations give back, not, not security vendors. So people like, you know, Netflix wrote like an instant response tool yeah, and they dispatch. gave it away for free. Yeah, dispatch, that's yeah. the one. There was another one I forgot, but these tools like, they're invaluable to have. Like T-Mobile wrote a whole tool to do like compliance in cloud. I think it's called Packbot or something like that. It's, it's yeah. totally free. And it's it's a really good product. It's it's not something like you're, you know, an open source project that hasn't been maintained in years. And it's like constantly updated, maintained stuff. You know, even earlier on in the in the security journey of Elastic, you had people like Roberto Rodriguez build out the Hulk. Uh, you had Rock NSM, you had uh, Wazoo all these organizations building out really powerful tools that you could use. And they cover all aspects of security, not just operations, like literally anything you can think of, there's someone doing it. Yeah, there's also a lot of inspiration you can take from some of the from some of those teams as well. That I think, uh, yeah, I think it was the Dropbox team that talked a lot about like chat offs back in the early days. And I was like, that's incredibly smart here. Uh, we should definitely try to you know take some inspiration from some of, uh, some of what they're doing. One of the challenges, I love what you're saying that like, you know, ask for help. There's great resources. There's great people on Twitter. There's great people like in your various different Slack communities that you can ask that will uh, be willing to help. But one of the fears I have about uh, Twitter and things like that is that people talk about the incredible stuff they do. It is almost in some cases a little bit like your, you know, your Instagram life that you put up on Twitter. It's like, here's the amazing detection that I just built. Not saying, hey, here's the 72 hours that it took for me to build that amazing <laughs> detection. And um, by the way, we are we weren't protected for this over here for, for the longest time. So it's um do not be afraid to ask and do not be afraid to reach out. The security community is very uh, is very welcome Absolutely. when we do when you do ask. I suppose so so kind of a last question here. So five years from now, what do you think security operations teams will look like and how is Elastic helping us get there? 
well, there's going to be more acronyms to deal with. Nah, I'm joking. So like, that, that's just the fact of, of the industry. Uh, but jokes aside, I think five years from now, honestly, we will be in a state where vendors like Elastic and others will do so much from the getting started experience that mm-hmm. security teams will be left to do the things that they love to do and want to do. So yeah. there's not going to be the case of a big portion of my time is going to be maintaining an Elastic cluster or whatever tool you're using or worrying about data ingest. It's going to be doing the security operations part, the fun stuff. I think five years down the line, there's going to be so many advancements in that area and like infrastructure as code is going to become way more mainstream than it already is. That will be in a point where if you need to do security operations, you sign up, you send your data sources and you're, you're doing your thing, right? Or as close to that as possible. So that's where I see it. And I think, I think we're already not too far off. I think it might happen, you know, before the five years hit, but, uh, if I take the last five years, that's already happened so much. Like even if you look at newer security vendors, I would say most of them just offer SaaS by default, right? They, they wouldn't even bother like going down the on-prem route or yep. the, the physical device era anymore. Like you still, you still might have organizations that have requirements to do that. Um, but for the most part, I think we're going to get to a stage where almost set it and forget it. It's never going to be fully set it and forget it, but as set it and forget it as possible. Yeah, I love it. There, yeah, infrastructure is code, detection is code. It really is where people are uh, People are going. Uh, James, thank you so much for joining us today. That's unfortunately all the time we have to cover. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow your journey and keep up with you, where should they go? Yeah, so uh, I'm on LinkedIn. That's my primary professional social media. Um, but I'm also on Twitter. I We do have our community Slack and I'm very active on all the security channels there. So the link is ela.st slash Slack. So any of those mediums, I'm a few clicks away if you need to ask any questions or anything like that. Uh, again, it doesn't have, just have to be elastic. Um, I'm happy to geek out on any security topics. Uh, so free to reach out whenever. Awesome. Thanks again. And we hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you, James. Thanks, Thomas. This was great. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.